Today we start the next chapter of our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Just to keep our eye on the big picture, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first recorded significant teaching in the Bible related to his declaration that the kingdom of God had come. And now in this sermon, he reveals to us his picture of that kingdom culture. And the very first thing he does is to describe the people of that kingdom in the Beatitudes. And so we call that kingdom people. The Beatitudes tell us what kind of people we're to be. And then the salt and light uh, metaphors tell us what type of influence those people are to have on the world around them. In summary, if we live Christ-like lives, we bring blessing to ourselves, blessed are those. We bring salvation to the world around us and we bring glory to our Father in heaven. Now we get into a section that is considered, especially the verses we're going to look at today, some of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament. They have brought great confusion to many people in relation to Jesus' view of the Old Testament law and the role it's supposed to play in the kingdom of God, our kingdom. I like Tim Keller's analogy of passages and teachings like this as being like rock or hard candy. (laughs) I remember as a kid, when we visit my grandmom and grandpa, they'd always have a bowl of hard candy, and it was the kind that was run out in a tube, and while it was still soft, they'd cut it into pieces, and then it hardened and wrapped. So you put it in your mouth, and the first thing, you catch those edges, and it would hurt a little bit. But the more you sucked on it, those edges started smoothing off, and you could begin enjoying it. And that's what these kind of passages are like. And so my hope is that while we come to this, you're gonna say, well, this might be making my brain work a little harder than I'd like to on a Sunday morning. I hope that it'll become sweet as we get into it. And it's very important because this particular passage today sets the stage for this whole next chapter, which we are calling Kingdom Morality. We're going to be again in Matthew chapter five, and I invite you to turn there with me. Two weeks ago, Lou concluded the first section by teaching right through verse 16. And now Jesus, from that idea of being salt and light to the world around us, begins to address what it would look like to live these good lives, to let our light shine before the world so that they glorify our Father in heaven. Beginning at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, by the way, that's like saying empty-headed. You're empty-headed. Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, these have been verses that have caused a lot of confusion. Groups like Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventists, have taken this teaching, among others, to prove their idea that we are still bound by the entire Old Testament law, including its dietary restrictions and the like. That's not the intent here. The fact that we've already set the context and are coming into this passage, having traveled through this sermon to this point, helps us understand a lot of things. If you are just joining us, you can go back online or on a Vimeo and see videos of the sermons as well up to this point. And they, they will help dispel some of those false assumptions that uh, groups get caught up in in here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I'm gonna take this apart phrase by phrase, and the first is that simple three-word statement, I have come. It's worth noting that Jesus had a clear sense of mission. He had come, and he had a purpose, and he knew what that purpose wasn't, and he also knew what that purpose was. So when we look at what we refer to as Christology, our belief about Jesus, he didn't fall into God's use of him for redemption. He came with a mission, he understood that mission, and he also understood that he had come into the world from the Father. Now, the second phrase is the law and the prophets. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. What is Jesus really referring to here? What follows are contrasts between the way the Pharisees applied the law of Moses and the way Jesus believed it ought to be practiced by kingdom people. And so because of that, we emphasize the idea of the law, but Jesus is referring to the entire Old Testament. The law is all the books of Moses, which include three types of actual law, the uh, moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. It's important to keep those distinctions because as we go through the New Testament, we do see how the ceremonial law and the civil law no longer apply to us as kingdom people today. The moral law carries through. But when he says the law and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. So this is about Jesus' view of the Old Testament and therefore, it matters to us. Our view of the Old Testament ought to match Jesus. And Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to put it aside. I've met people over the years that spend very little time in the Old Testament, even though it's the majority of your Bible. They feel like they get everything they need out of the New Testament. I've met people who refer to themselves as Paulinists. They only 
really study the Apostle Paul because they think he summarizes it all pretty well. Jesus says, none of the Old Testament is put away. I did not come to abolish it. Now, Jesus came teaching in a way that people weren't used to. Jesus spoke from his own authority, and that was unusual. The rabbis and the scribes, the teachers of the law, never invoked their own authority. The law spoke, they simply applied and explained. But Jesus spoke differently. Even here, we're going to see over and over again Jesus saying, truly, I say to you. And what he's saying is, I'm the source of truth here. I am the truth, and I'm letting you know what the truth is. And so consequently, the religious leaders were so caught off guard by this, they called it a new teaching, and would ask him, by whose authority are you sharing these things? And it led them to believe that this Jesus was espousing a whole different set of ideas than Moses and the law and the prophets. And so Jesus is correcting them. He's saying, look, I didn't come to put aside or to abolish the Old Testament. Instead, I came to fulfill them. Now, what do we mean by that? The easy one to answer is the prophets because the writers of the New Testament help us understand how Jesus fulfilled the the prophets. Some 300 major and minor prophecies that in his birth and in his life and in his death and resurrection that he fulfilled. So that's the easy one. We know that Jesus fulfilled the prophets, but what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? He seemed to disregard the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. His disciples went into the fields and pulled grain out to make uh, bread on the Sabbath. He got in an aggressive debate with the religious teachers and he said, look, men weren't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for men. As we move into the book of Acts, we see even more done away with of the Old Testament law. Peter has that great uh, vision, a sheet full of all sorts of unclean meat that according to the civil law of the Old Testament, he should never eat. And yet God says, no, I've, I've called this clean now. Don't call unclean what I call clean. Of course, there was a broader analogy there to Gentiles, but the principle also follows. Peter did eat the meat. There are parts of the Old Testament that were unique for the nation of Israel that aren't for us today. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I've come to fulfill the law? Well, I think it's a lot simpler than we've made it. Let me just give you a few passages of scripture that I think help us understand this. Understanding that the law is referring to the whole teaching of Moses. We have Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 when he's discussing the importance of John the Baptist as the forerunner, one of the things he says in verse 12 is, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. All the prophets and the law prophesied. It's important for you to understand that from Jesus' perspective, he's seeing the Old Testament for what it is. It all points to him. 
Look at what he does in Luke chapter 24 when he is on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples who don't recognize him as the risen Lord yet. And they're confused by the events that have taken place around the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we see this verse, let's say it together. Beginning with Moses, the law, and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scripture concerning himself. All of the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled by Jesus. It's all a roadmap to the advent and to the cross and to redemption. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not new teaching. I'm the fulfillment of all the teaching. Does that make sense? And that's what he's saying to the Pharisees who have missed that all together. He's the fulfillment of it. Now we go down to verse 18 and we're going to see three things revealed here about Jesus' view of the Old Testament. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Three things here. The first is related to this statement, until heaven and earth disappear. What Jesus is saying is that there is a permanence to the Old Testament scripture. The Old Testament is God's word for all time. And the second thing he says is not the smallest letter or stroke of a pen. The smallest Hebrew letter and then what we might refer to as a serif, a little flourish at the end of a letter right down to those little details. And what we learn from that about Jesus' view is completeness, every word and detail of the Old Testament matters. It all matters. I love the fact that one of the things we took on was a, a study through the Old Testament narrative. It took a long time to go through it, year and a half, to go through the whole Old Testament narrative and then into the life of Christ and then the book of Acts. It was worth doing, wasn't it? And we should double back and start again sometime and dig into every little detail because all of it matters. It is complete. And then the third thing he says is it will not disappear until everything is accomplished. And what I get from that is relevance. Even the Old Testament scripture is important for our lives and our mission today. It matters. We need to know the Old Testament. We need to become familiar with it as a roadmap to the cross. We need to understand how it progressively reveals who God is and who we as his people are and how we are to live as salt and light to the world around us. It all matters. And so if we put that all together, we have these four truths about the Old Testament that we get from this. All of it points and is fulfilled in Jesus. It is God's word for all time. Even the smallest details matter, and it's relevant to our lives today. That's Jesus' view of it, and it ought to be ours. Now he moves on and talks about some implications of the law to Christians. Let's read again verses 19 and 20. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But 
Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. First comment. What? What is he getting at here? Unless our righteousness exceeds, I thought we learned through the Beatitudes that it's not about our personal righteousness. In fact, we can't enter the kingdom of heaven if we don't understand our spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn for their sin. We come into the kingdom of God by acknowledging that we can't be good enough. And and then Jesus turns around and says, unless you're better than even the Pharisees themselves, Is Jesus saying that we must obey the Old Testament law perfectly in order to go to heaven? Is that what he's saying here? The first way that we can come at this to understand it is that it all happens within the kingdom of heaven. He says even if you treat it lightly, you will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And if you teach it properly, you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. So who are we talking about? Whose attitudes towards the Old Testament law are we talking about here? Believers, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is we can limit our significance, what God can do with us. God says those that I can least use are are those that disregard God's word, that make light of it, that dismiss and leave behind the very important value of righteousness that I reveal through the Old Testament. It's for Christians. It's not about attaining the kingdom of God. So if that's true, then what does he mean when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees? What's he getting at there? Here's how I want to answer it. The righteousness of the Pharisees was about religious perfection and human rules. Do you remember several weeks ago we went forward in Matthew to where Jesus had this conflict about Sabbath and he says to them, you're just like your ancestors when the prophet said that you obey the law but your heart is far from God. It amounts to human rules for you. The righteousness of the Pharisees was inadequate, did not achieve the end result, which was what? To know God. Jesus is saying our righteousness has to do better than that. The answer is not work harder at it and make more laws so that our legalistic righteousness exceeds the Pharisees. That's not what he's talking about. The Pharisees were focused on religious righteousness. And what we're about to see as we work through this next section is that Jesus is talking about a type of righteousness that exceeds that altogether. Now, look with me quickly in Romans chapter three, where Paul does an excellent job laying out the difference between the righteousness that the Pharisees sought through religious adherence externally through the law and the righteousness that Christ brings that exceeds the righteousness 
of the Pharisees. Romans 3, I'll begin at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Why did the Pharisees' righteousness fall short? Because the purpose of the law was never to attain perfect righteousness. It was to show us the character of God and what the character of his people is to be, and by virtue of our inevitable failure to follow it, to reveal our need for a different type of righteousness, one that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharaoh, of the Pharaohs, excuse me, of the Pharaohs, Pharisees, it doesn't matter. Blind leading the blind either way. And then he goes on, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. What does that mean? They prophesied. See, Jesus fulfilled what the law and the prophets foretold by bringing a different type of righteousness apart from the law. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Jesus came to fulfill the law by making it possible for us to attain the righteousness that the law revealed we could not attain on our own. And therefore, the righteousness that he came to bring exceeds religious righteousness because it brings what that could never bring. It brings reconciliation. It brings redemption. It brings righteousness of our heart and of our soul not because we've earned it, but because Christ took our sin, as Paul says to the church at Corinth, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Guess what? Your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees. It's really good. And I can say that because it's not me. It's Jesus. Our true righteousness is found through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Now, He's about to bring a whole list of examples of what this new type of people, how they now relate to the law of the Old Testament, contrasting the Pharisaical law and their view and application of the Old Testament with what it's really meant to be. And the first example of it we read just a few moments ago, and we're just going to quickly cover this. Let's read again verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the People long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, you empty-headed, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. 
Or, for instance, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What I want to do is to help you see a key to how we're going to interpret each of these things. We'd make a mistake if what we think Jesus is doing is articulating more specifically what the Old Testament law is about. It's richer than that. He's not just correcting, he's filling. He's filling. Do you remember one of the Beatitudes was, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's a different Greek word, but actually, when Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, and when he says of the Beatitudes, those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled, the translation of both of those is the same. It literally means to fill up. Think about that. Our hunger and thirst to live rightly is what sets our morality apart from mere religious morality. Look at what God says through the prophet Jeremiah when he looks forward to the day, and I believe looking forward all the way to us. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, let's say it together. I will put my law in their minds, I will write it on their hearts, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? You obey the law, but your hearts are where? Far from God. But he looks forward to a time when he brings the excelling, the perfect righteousness through the cross, where he would inscribe his real law on our hearts and on our minds. Our heart would be so set on being righteous and to live a life that is a light to the world around us so that all men praise our Father in heaven. Our heart will be so tuned to that that our obedience to righteousness is so much deeper than the letter of the law. You have heard it said, don't commit murder or you'll be subject to judgment. But I tell you, If you hate your brother or sister, you will also come to judgment. Now, Jesus is not saying hatred is the same as murder. You read it. It's not saying that. Hatred is also subject to judgment. The Pharisees were satisfied as long as they didn't commit murder, they were being righteous. God says truly righteous people understand that murder is just the ultimate act of a heart filled with hatred. And because our hearts hunger and thirst for God, our attitudes towards others are just as important. And therefore he goes on and offers two ideas about it. If we understand that our hatred is as important, our attitude towards people is as important as the letter of the law, then we're gonna be peacemakers. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers. That'd be one of our marks. We're gonna make peace. We're gonna recognize I cannot worship God 
my heart cannot fully embrace God when I know in my heart I'm not at peace with a brother or sister. So I can't even really worship God until I go and make peace with them. And even my enemies, those, those who are taking legal action against me, I'm, I'm going to try to settle that, to do what's right beforehand rather than dishonoring God by finding myself in a setting that I could have avoided if I just not hated my enemy. Heart matters. And so the real key to understand this in Cyrus' section is to see that Jesus is contrasting the righteousness of the Pharisees, which is based on external religious rules, with the righteousness of kingdom people who hunger and thirst for it with their mind and their heart. Those people are salt and light. They bring change and truth and transformation of the world around us. That's what we're gonna learn in this section. That makes it pretty sweet. Little rough around the edges, but sweet when you start really working it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I just love taking it the way we are, step by step, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because it brings the truth out in ways that when we just jump in, we miss. And we thank you for this incredible truth that there's a righteousness that you've provided that exceeds any religious righteousness because it brings your very righteousness to us. And now our heart's desire is to live in a way that reflects that righteousness and brings glory and honor to you. Father, may we be those kind of people who love you and seek and hunger for righteousness with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.